Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Haikashrafi. Today is November 5th, 2020, and I'm speaking with Johnson Miller of Drexel University. Johnson is author of Engineering Manhood, Race, and the Antebellum Virginia Military Institute. Thank you for joining us, Johnson. Thank you very much. Your book describes the process of establishing the Virginia Military Institute, VMI, as a school of engineering, but as part of struggles to establish political personhood in Virginia, you found that you had to address issues of class and ethnicity and gender and race and regional identity. To start us off, could you describe what the activities that we now call engineering were like at the beginning of your story in the early 19th century? Sure. Um, and so part of this is an issue of, of terminology. So when people thought of engineers as a group of professionals in the 1820s and 1830s, they were generally thinking of what we would now would call civil engineers and military engineers. Uh, and so typically in antebellum Virginia, a civil engineer in some cases worked for the state. Uh, the state of Virginia as chief engineer might manage a group of laborers uh, to build a, a turnpike or in some cases uh, a, a canal. And sometimes these folks were uh, trained in some sort of formal way, though that was relatively rare. In, in antebellum Virginia, there was virtually no schools for training engineers. Most of them learned on the job. And in many cases, an engineer was just whatever you could get away with. You'd be like, yeah, sure, I can build a road. And you'd clear out some trees and, and make uh, something was too steep of a grade, bends that were too wide for freight traffic. And it was often uh, quite a mess. Mechanical engineering was developing as a profession Really, in starting the 1850s, the U.S. Navy was an important part of professionalizing this with their uh, ships, with their steam engines, and needing to develop a, a class of folks who could reliably build and maintain uh, these. The first, or I'm really talking about uh, civil engineering. The, again, the engineer as a designer or surveyor and planner for the road, uh, but oftentimes also the manager of labor. So whenever the state of Virginia would get involved with a turnpike project, for example, the state engineer uh, might have to verify whatever plans were developed for it, make sure it met certain standards, and then might do things uh, like arranging for the hiring of enslaved people to carry out some of that labor and would arrange for the, uh, the hiring of free labor uh, to carry it out. And the engineer sometimes would end up with the role of simply checking their work afterwards and crying in despair at the uh, terrible quality of it. Now, you describe the establishment of VNI in the context of political disputes between East and West Virginia and the role of education in those disputes. Can you tell us about that story? Sure. So in many eastern states, in particular in the United States, people are today are familiar with political conflicts between people in one section of the state and, and the other, you know, people in North Jersey versus South Jersey, New York City versus upstate New York. And this was true in the antebellum period as well. Remember, at this point, Virginia included what is today West Virginia. So it was a much larger state. And the eastern part of Virginia, so east of the, the Blue Ridge Mountains, the white population was largely descended from English folks. Their politics was controlled by the, the planter elite, so the uh, white uh, English-descended uh, men who owned plantations and enslaved people. And then west of the Blue Ridge Mountains, white people were, there were uh, some some Germans, same sort of folks as Pennsylvania Dutch, and, and Scots-Irish uh, folks were the largest group there. Slaveholding was much less in, in that part. 
practically none in what's now West Virginia. And at that time, up until 1850, white men had to own a certain amount of property in order to vote. The idea is that if you own property, you had sufficient stake in society to govern responsibly, uh, and you weren't going to use the power of government, for example, to take other men's property away. And in the western part of Virginia, men were much less likely to meet those qualifications. And also because of what now, I guess, what we call gerrymandering, the state legislature was also dominated by those Eastern English-descended planters. And this created great conflicts between Eastern West Virginia's folks in the West, largely Scots-Irish. They wanted to establish things like uh, roads and banks, things to connect them into the growing market economy that was growing tremendously after the War of 1812. Folks in the East, those slave-holding planters, they had access to some of the most navigable waterways in the Eastern United States. The ones with the best land who owned the most, they were closest to those rivers. They didn't need the canals and the roads as much. And so they weren't willing to spend tax money on the development of what was then called internal improvements, you know, the banks and roads and uh, in canals. And so the, fo the folks of Western Virginia, the white men, wanted to gain political power so that they could gain their political interests in government. So this meant gaining access to universal white male suffrage, let all white men vote and change the, the distribution of legislative districts in Virginia, which was done in a way that disadvantaged uh, men of the, of the West. So there was these great conflicts. And ever since the 1820s, there was threats of secession, of Western Virginia seceding from the East, uh, which ended up happening, of course, in 1861, when uh, Virginia voted to secede from the United States. The folks in West Virginia said, uh, no way, they seceded from Virginia and, of course, became the state of West Virginia. And so this is the primary context for the emergence of VMI. So if you're in this political context in which having the right simply to vote, let alone to participate in government, went along with this ideology that you had to be um, an independent man, meaning you did not have a master, you were not beholden to anybody for wages, and to have what was called uh, public virtue, the capacity to set aside one's own interests for the common good. And that the shorthand for that was owning land and slaves. And so men of West, Western Virginia, they were excluded from that. And so how was a way that you could transform the political culture so that you could see all white men as somehow possessing that capacity to set aside one's interests for the common good. Now, Scots-Irish folks tended to have brought with them a strong uh, interest in education. The English-descended planters of the East were not interested in investing in public education. There was the University of Virginia. So higher education became more acceptable than primary and secondary school. But the Scots-Irish, this is sort of a natural way of going about it. And so there, there was this arsenal for the militia in uh, Western Virginia, in Roanoke County, and the townsfolk in Lexington weren't very happy about the guard that was there anyway. So somebody came up with a bright idea of, well, why don't we create a school over the arsenal and have the cadets uh, guard it? And then in exchange for that service, you could get white boys who could not otherwise afford higher education be able to come to that school and gain an education and thereby demonstrate the merit of these boys and to show that genius was as often born under a cottage roof as it was among wealth, right? So that, that poverty was an artificial barrier to the expression of virtue and merit. And so with this school, they could effectively create a place where these boys could come and prove to the rest of Virginia that in fact this merit and this virtue existed among all white men, that all white men were inherently virtuous, could inherently subordinate their interests for the common good. Therefore, all white men could participate in governments. So it be, the school was effectively an argument for spreading the right to vote to all white men. So why a military institute and why focus on engineering education? 
So it, it is not clear who first came up with the idea of creating the military school on the, the grounds there. Various theories have been made. Um, but So there you have an arsenal, right? And so there was lots of educational options were debated there. But an arsenal perhaps suggested something along the lines of West Point. If you're going to have students guarding an arsenal, well, military training makes sense. So originally the idea was, well, the students, they could take classes, a regular liberal education, studying Greek and Latin and uh, whatever else at uh, next door at Washington College, it's now Washington and Lee University, while getting military training at VMI, partly so that they could guard this arsenal. But also think about the, the sort of disciplining process involved here. Imagine you're taking boys from across Virginia, which of course they have to be because it'd be a public school, taking them from across Virginia, so you'd have English descended, German, Scots Irish descended boys, bring them all together. Perhaps they come from across class boundaries. And then you go and you put a uniform on them. They were barred from doing things like having dogs or, or having or hiring their own slaves to do work for them. So all the accoutrements of wealth were stripped away from them so that these boys could then compete together on what was seen as a level playing field so that the only distinctions would be those of their individual merit, whether it's in terms of academics or in terms of their behavior and following the rules and so forth. Um, and so the military discipline became a way of creating a sort of microcosm that they wanted all of Virginia to be, a place in which all white men could equal compete and participate in governance and in the professions and so forth. And West Point was the obvious model if you were going, I mean, it's the only model, if you were going to create a, a, a military school there. And so right away, they turned to, for the first superintendent, a graduate of West Point, a former army officer who had worked as an engineer, because at West Point, one of the things you learned was engineering. And he gave, gave life to the school. Uh, but the engineering curriculum was already being built in, partly because the, the president of the first board of visitors that they chose for this, Claudius Crozet. He was French. He was trained at the elite engineering schools in France, which were the most prestigious engineering schools in the world at that time and, and still are among the most prestigious. And he came here on the boat over. He met um, a West Point professor who said, hey, you should come and teach math here because there's a whole bunch of math that we don't know about in America. You should teach this. Uh, he did. He didn't like West Point. And um, he traveled around a bit working as an engineer, worked as a state engineer in Virginia. And so when they were establishing the school, for whatever reason, he was picked to serve on the Board of Visitors, became president. Now, for him, based on the Ecole Polytechnique in Paris, and West Point, an engineering curriculum was simply obvious, that that went hand in hand with a military education. Uh, and so he crafted the outlines of uh, effectively an engineering curriculum. Of course, they studied other, other things there, but if you look at the curriculum developed, the use of math, science, and engineering courses, all the courses build up to this pinnacle of engineering courses. And this served the interests of those men of Western Virginia, who, remember, their primary political or primary, a primary political concern was because of gerrymandering and being disenfranchised, they couldn't get the sorts of the roads and, and the canals and so forth that they wanted to connect them into the market economy. So who was going to build those? Well, then it, once it ended up, it was turning into an engineering school. Well, it was extra bonus here. These boys could come out of here and they could go create the very projects that would be necessary for connecting into the market economy. So for the graduates of VMI, engineering wasn't just a job. Right. As they're building this school, it's a new sort of institution. The folks who are building it, they needed to legitimate it, right? So here's this new thing where they're teaching science and math. And outside of West Point, it provided probably the best mathematical education you were going to get in the United States. And so the elites, they were going to the colleges where they were they knew Greek and Latin and were studying the, uh, the liberal arts as a way of crafting them into a particular sort of leader that would govern Virginia and master other men. 
including enslaving people or uh, white wage workers. Now, these boys coming largely from lower classes, some, you know, some poor, some from the middling classes, a school for them wasn't going to be able to compete in legitimacy if what they went after was a liberal education. And so this new form of education served as both the military training and the engineering education provide a superior form of education that creates a superior sort of graduate. Through the military training, they become morally superior people. Through this, this military discipline, we train them to subordinate themselves to the law, their, subordinate their own interests to those of the state, that the boys would leave. Uh, now, many of them went into becoming teachers. Many of them went on to become engineers. And many went on to just do other random things. They end up eventually becoming lawyers and doctors and businessmen or what have you. But the sort of ideal that the officers of school presented was these boys going out and becoming sort of servant leaders, that they would um, subordinate their interests to develop the economic interests of the state as a whole, that Virginia had fallen, this idea that it had fallen behind from its previous place as the political and economic leader of the United States, and that the planter elite were the ones that had dragged it down. But these boys are going to come out and become new leaders that would lead Virginia back to its glory of a more diversified economy, an expanding economy, a more liberal and forward-looking state uh, that could reclaim that status. And so on the one hand, they were to serve Virginia by instead of simply pursuing individual careers, they were to pursue projects that develop the state. So they're, they're as servants to the state, but also leaders in that they would provide a new form of leadership with the hopes of sort of displacing the planter elite. And so folks coming out of the middling classes, effectively taking over, uh, that part, um, of course, failed. So one of the points of your book is the fact that engineering has been for white men for generations is not something we can take granted, nor the category of whiteness nor manhood. Can you describe how the production of a particular kind of white man fits in with the development of VMI and engineering as a profession? It would be really easy to look at a school developing in being founded in the 1830s, developing up through the Civil War, to look at it and say, well, of course, only white boys went to this school. That's just the way things were back then. But as historians, we're, we're basically barred from saying that sort of thing, right? We have to understand, well, why was it that it was seen that way, that only white boys would be suitable? In the case of VMI, what we see is that the whole purpose of the school doesn't make sense unless it's only white boys who are going there. The school was founded as effectively a node in this struggle between the eastern and western parts of the state, an effort to elevate the political status of lower class, middle and lower class white uh, white men to as a place to prove that white men were inherently virtuous. And so the other side of that was women and black men inherently lacked virtue, that they inherently lacked the capacity to set aside their interests for the common good. And so on the one hand, the school was an egalitarian sort of thing in the sense that it was broadening out opportunities for white men. But on the other hand, it was fully committed to white supremacy. The school enslaved people and was exclusively for uh, for white men, and so, but again, the purpose was to elevate the status of white men to demonstrate their equality. And so, right there, allowing women and black men into school simply makes no sense because the school is part of a political struggle. And therefore, as you're crafting an identity of what it means to be an engineer and what engineers do, it only makes sense that the engineers have to also be white men. That you have to be a particular kind of white man to be an engineer. So remember, as these sort of servant leaders, they were to go out to subordinate their own interests, their mere career interests, in order to uh, serve the interests of the state as a whole um, through economic development. And so the argument was that women and black men were constitutionally incapable of doing such a thing, incapable of subordinating their own interests for the common good. And here making the argument that all white men were inherently capable of doing exactly that. So they had to be white men and they had to be particular kinds of uh, white men. So there's not an argument to 
made here that, oh, because of this idea then spread throughout all engineering schools later and into professional engineering, and it's because of VMI that engineering is today overwhelmingly white and, and male. But instead, what we see here is an example where in very particular contexts, for particular reasons, engineers, engineering professors, institutions, schools working very hard to do a sort of cultural work to define engineers in a particular way. And it, in the case of VMI, very explicitly talking about white manhood all the time. But you can see that sort of work was being done at other sorts of institutions as well. As you cultivate an identity, it's going to intersect with a whole bunch of different types of, of identities. And so he's crafting an engineering identity, pulling on gendered and racialized uh, notions of identity. And so it's not that, oh, today engineering has simply inherited this bad story of uh, engineers having to be white men in the past or something. We have to look at the ways in which they continue to enculturate engineering students now that most learn engineering in schools, how they enculturate them to be particular kinds of people in the ways that this makes it more difficult for some students to be seen as engineers. And so, uh, for example, an anthropologist did field studies in engineering classrooms and the sort of informal interactions between the students and professors. And she found a whole bunch of times that when uh, some companies was looking for folks to hire for summer jobs, engineering professors as sort of looking around the room, women, for example, just sort of fading the background, not being seen as engineers. It was the men who popped forward into the foreground of their of their awareness that to be an engineer was to be a certain kind of person. And part of that was this, um, this manhood. But the case of VMI also shows you got to look at the very particular ways this is happening in a lot of different situations. It's not one simple phenomenon, but the overall result is that uh, there are very few uh, women or black people in engineering uh, still today. And the, the discussions about race and engineering and education continue today at VMI, don't they? Uh, yes. And it's actually heated up very much as a response to the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. Now, once the Civil War passed, the meaning of VMI became very different. Now, remember, West Virginia seceded from Virginia. And so much of the Scots-Irish population was now separated out, doing their own thing. They abolished slavery. And so VMI was left not as this node in a network trying to advance the interests of the emerging middle class and the Scots-Irish, but now was firmly embedded with a, a state dominated by the, the planter class, though slaves had then been emancipated. And the sort of cultural meaning of VMI shifted to become a sort of celebration of the lost cause ideology, this idea that the Civil War was a good cause, something worth fighting for, that those who fought in it were sort of representatives of the ideal manhood. And VMI was actively involved in, in the war. Cadets fought and died during the war. It became a place for training officers uh, during the war. And you see this celebration of the lost cause ideology persist there, where cadets have to learn the names of the cadets who died at the Battle of Newmarket. There's a, a statue of Stonewall Jackson there. He had been a, a VMI professor who then died during the war. And until recently, cadets, as they passed the statue, always had to salute it. VMI was the last institution of higher education in Virginia to admit black students after the desegregation of, of education. It took another, I think, 13 years. It was only 10, 15 years that the state-funded institution admitted women, which is just astounding. And so it's been extremely conservative in abiding by the laws of the United States regarding discrimination. Now students are challenging that even more. They got the school to stop requiring the saluting of the statue. And actually just within the last week, the Board of Visitors voted to remove the statue of Jackson, who had fought against the United States, who was a slaveholder and who had fought in defense of slavery. And so as a symbol 
the lost cause as a symbol of white supremacy. And so he's now being removed. The superintendent has resigned after a lot of stories came out about uh, acts of racism by professors and fellow cadets, uh, including a professor who reminisced about the wonderful parties the Ku Klux Klan threw for children when she was uh, a kid and how she and her friends would go around bopping. That's hitting with a two by four uh, people who didn't belong in the neighborhood, presumably uh, black people. And that was just part of a class discussion. And so the state of Virginia is now investigating racism at, at VMI. And I think folks at VMI, they should they can reject the tradition of a lost cause and go back to an older tradition that as flawed as it was, was a, a tradition of creating a place to expand opportunities for people. That is also a tradition of VMI. That is, a, even though it was limited to expanding it for white men, that was the origins of it, expanding opportunity. And it can embrace that uh, tradition today, eliminate this devotion to the lost cause, and once again embrace expansion of opportunity. Thank you, Johnson. Thank you for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. Thanks for having me on. The book is Engineering Manhood, Race, and the Antebellum Virginia Military Institute. It is available as a free download from Lever Press. You can find the link on our website. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. You can find more resources for exploring this topic, other podcasts, video lectures, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect with our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation.